Section three of Not George Washington by P. G. Woodhouse. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Deborah Lynn. Not George Washington by P. G. Woodhouse. Part one, chapter three. A harmless deception. Miss Margaret Goodwin's narrative continued. They say that everyone is capable of one novel, and in my opinion, most people could write one play. Whether I wrote mine in an inspiration of despair, I cannot say. I wrote it. Three years had passed, and James was still haggling with those who buy men's brains. His earnings were enough just to keep his head above water, but not enough to make us two one. Perhaps, because everything is clear and easy for us now, I am gradually losing a proper appreciation of his struggle. That should never be. He did not win, but he did not lose, which means nearly as much. For it is almost less difficult to win than not to lose, so my mother has told me, in modern journalistic London. And I know that he would have won. The fact that he continued the fight as he did was in itself a pledge of ultimate victory. What he went through while trying with his pen to make a living for himself and me, I learned from his letters. London, he wrote, is not paved with gold, but in literary fields there are nuggets to be had by the lightest scratching, and those nuggets are plays. A successful play gives you money and a name automatically. What the ordinary writer makes in a year, the successful dramatist receives without labor in a fortnight. He went on to deplore his total lack of dramatic intuition. Some men, he said, have some of the qualifications while falling short of the others. They have a sense of situation without the necessary tricks of technique. Or they sacrifice plot to atmosphere, or atmosphere to plot. I, worse luck, have not one single qualification. The nursing of a climax, the tremendous omissions in the dialogue, the knack of stage characterization, all these things are in some inexplicable way outside me. It was this letter that set me thinking. Ever since James had left the island, I had been chafing at the helplessness of my position. While he toiled in London, what was I doing? Nothing. I suppose I helped him in a way. The thought of me would be with him always, spurring him on to work, that the time of our separation might be less. But it was not enough. I wanted to be doing something, and it was during these restless weeks that I wrote my play. I think nothing will ever erase from my mind the moment when the central idea of the girl who waited came to me. It was a boisterous October evening. The wind had been rising all day. Now the branches of the lilac were dancing in the rush of the storm, and far out in the bay one could see the white crests of the waves gleaming through the growing darkness. We had just finished tea. The lamp was lit in our little drawing-room, and on the sofa, so placed that the light fell over her left shoulder, in the manner recommended by oculists, sat my mother with Schopenhauer's Art of Literature. Ponto slept on the rug. Something in the unruffled peace of the scene tore at my nerves. I have seldom felt so restless. It may have been the storm that made me so. I think myself that it was James's letter. The boat had been late that morning, owing to the weather, and I had not received the letter till after lunch. I listened to the howl of the wind and longed to be out in it. My mother looked at me over her book. "'You are restless, Margie,' she said. "'There is a volume of Marcus Aurelius on the table beside you, if you care to read.' "'No, thank you, mother,' I said. "'I think I shall go for a walk.' "'Wrap up well, my dear,' she replied. She then resumed her book. 
I went out of our little garden and stood on the cliff. The wind flew at me like some wild thing. Spray stung my face. I was filled with a wild exhilaration. And then the idea came to me. The simplest, most dramatic idea. Quaint, whimsical, with just that suggestion of pathos blended with it which makes the fortunes of a play. The central idea, to be brief, of the girl who waited. Of my man-ed tramp along the cliff-top with my brain afire, and my return draggled and dripping an hour late for dinner. Of my writing and rewriting, of my tears and black depression, of the pens I wore out and the quires of paper I spoiled, and finally of the ecstasy of the day when the piece began to move and the characters to live, I need not speak. Anyone who has ever written will know the sensations. James must have gone through a hundred times what I went through once. At last, at long last, the play was finished. For two days I gloated alone over the great pile of manuscript. Then I went to my mother. My diffidence was exquisite. It was all I could do to tell her the nature of my request when I spoke to her after lunch. At last she understood that I had written a play and wished to read it to her. She took me to the bow window with gentle solicitude and waited for me to proceed. At first she encouraged me, for I faltered over my opening words. But as I warmed my work, and as my embarrassment left me, she no longer spoke. Her eyes were fixed intently upon the blue space beyond the lilac. I read on and on, till at length my voice trailed over the last line, rose gallantly at the last fence, the single word curtain, and abruptly broke. The strain had been too much for me. Tenderly my mother drew me to the sofa, and quietly with closed eyelids I lay there, until, in the soft cool of the evening, I asked for her verdict. Seeing, as she did instantly, that it would be more dangerous to deny my request than to accede to it, she spoke. "'That there is an absence, my dear Margie, of any relationship with life, that not a single character is in any degree human, that passion and virtue and vice and real feeling are wanting, this surprises me more than I can tell you.' I had expected to listen to a natural, ordinary, unactable episode arranged more or less in stichomuthics. There is no work so scholarly and engaging as the amateurs. But in your play I am amazed to find the touch of the professional and experienced playwright. Yes, my dear, you have proved that you happen to possess the quality, one that is most difficult to acquire, of surrounding a situation which is improbable enough to be convincing with that absurdly mechanical conversation which the theatre-going public demands. As your mother, I am disappointed. I had hoped for originality. As your literary well-wisher, I stifle my maternal feelings and congratulate you unreservedly. I thanked my mother effusively. I think I cried a little. She said affectionately that the hour had been one of great interest to her, and she added that she would be glad to be consulted with regard to the steps I contemplated taking in my literary future. She then resumed her book. I went to my room and re-read the last letter I had had from James. The Barrel Club Covent Garden, London. My darling Margie, I am writing this line simply and solely for the selfish pleasure I gain from the act of writing to you. I know everything will come right some time or other, but at present I am suffering from a bad attack of the blues. I am like a general who has planned out a brilliant attack, and realizes that he must fail for want of sufficient troops to carry a position, on the taking of which the whole success of the assault depends." Briefly, my position is like this. 
My name is pretty well known in a small sort of way among editors and the like as that of a man who can turn out fairly good stuff. Besides this, I have many influential friends. You see where this brings me? I am in the middle of my attacking movement, and I have not been beaten back, but the key to the enemy's position is still uncaptured. You know what this key is from my other letters. It's the stage. Ah, Margie, one acting play, only one. It would mean everything. Apart from the actual triumph and the direct profits, it would bring so much with it. The enemy's flank would be turned, and the rest of the battle would become a mere rout. I should have an accepted position in the literary world which would convert all the other avenues to wealth on which I have my eye instantly into royal roads. Obstacles would vanish. The fact that I was a successful playwright would make the acceptance of the sort of work I am doing now inevitable, and I should get paid ten times as well for it. And it would mean—well, you know what it would mean, don't you? Darling Margie, tell me again that I have your love, that the waiting is not too hard, that you believe in me. Dearest, it will come right in the end. Nothing can prevent that. Love and the will of a man have always beaten time and fate. Write to me, dear. Ever your devoted James. How utterly free from thought of self! His magnificent loyalty forgot the dreadful tension of his own great battle, and pictured only the tedium of waiting which it was my part to endure. I finished my letter to James very late that night. It was a very long and explanatory letter, and it enclosed my play. The main point I aimed at was not to damp his spirits. He would, I knew well, see that the play was suitable for staging. He would, in short, see that I, an inexperienced girl, had done what he, a trained professional writer, had failed to do. Lest, therefore, his pique should kill admiration and pleasure when he received my work, I wrote as one begging a favor. "'Here,' I said, "'we have the means to achieve all we want. Do not, oh, do not criticize. I have written down the words, but the conception is yours. The play was inspired by you, but for you I should never have begun it. Take my play, James. Take it as your own, for yours it is. Put your name to it and produce it, if you love me, under your own signature. If this hurts your pride, I will word my request differently. You alone are able to manage the business side of the production. You know the right men to go to. To approach them on behalf of a stranger's work is far less likely to lead to success. I have assumed, you will see, that the play is certain to be produced, but that will only be so if you adopt it as your own. Claim the authorship, and all will be well. Much more I wrote to James in the same strain, and my reward came next day in the shape of a telegram. Except, thankfully, Cloister. Of the play and its reception by the public there is no need to speak. The criticisms were all favorable. Neither the praise of the critics nor the applause of the public aroused any trace of jealousy in James. Their unanimous note of praise has been a source of pride to him. He is proud, ah, joy, that I am to be his wife. I have blotted the last page of this commonplace love story of mine. The moon has come out from behind a cloud, and the whole bay is one vast sheet of silver. I could sit here at my bedroom window and look at it all night but then I should be sure to oversleep myself and be late for breakfast. I shall read what I have written once more, and then I shall go to bed. I think I shall wear my white muslin to-morrow. End of Miss Margaret Goodwin's Narrative End of Section 3 End of Part 1